0: Merry Christmas, everyone. It's Paul here. I'm just so excited to share with you all today's new episode featuring Paul Vanderclay and John Verveke, both who have been guests on the program on multiple occasions. I I don't know how many times I'd have to look back into the archives. I'm thinking at least three times for Paul Vanderclay, John Verveke has been on twice. And of course, we've talked about John's work in the Jesus and John Verveke series. Today's episode is also available on YouTube. I've been trying to invest a bit more attention and energy to using that platform as a means of communication, education, engagement, and interaction with all of you. So if you're a YouTube user, I would invite you to subscribe to the channel do all that other stuff that people on YouTube say, like turn on notifications and all that so if you prefer to watch this conversation feel free to pause this and head over to youtube where you can watch full dialogue otherwise i hope you enjoy today's conversation with paul vanderplay and john verveke well i'll just jump right in here john and paul i you know i don't know if this is fair for me to say and you can be like now we're not on those terms but I, I consider both of these men to be friends at least internet friends of mine that um okay. i've become I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> good 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 and I, I i would enjoy meeting you both in real life at some point as well but um, both of these men have those of you that listened to the program. Um, I'm starting to do a little bit more on YouTube as well and exploring that medium. But those of you who've been listening for the last three years, Paul has been a voice that was on my channel very and podcast on uh was on very early, probably in year one. He's been on for multiple conversations. Many of you are also familiar with John Verveke and his work. Um, John's been on. For a couple conversations, and then um, most of you have been following for a while. I've also followed, taken up quite an interest in John's work and trying to explore points of intersection between what I see is like historic Christian theology and John's work. Points of intersection, points of harmony, points of dissonance as well. So, some of you that have gone through that Jesus and John Verveke series are probably very familiar with John's work as well. So, but both of you together have been having tremendous dialogues. I mean. I feel like the quality of them has, they've always been good, but these last few that you guys have entered into have been really, really special. I see an increasing sense of trust. There's that agape love that's happening, I think. (laughs) And, uh, you know, as John, maybe you remember, as I was sharing in one of the the talks I gave on your work uh, and the the points of connection between N.T. Wright epistemology of love and agape I really sense like this epistemology of love that's Mm -hmm. happening in the dialogue between you two is that is that something that you both have noticed as well over the last couple of conversations you've had
1: Uh, I feel it's uh, yeah something's in the air Uh, that's increasingly my feeling Um, and uh, I mean I've for quite some time now I've had a tremendous amount of affection uh, for Paul. I mean, there's there's no other way of putting it. Uh, so I, that's been a constant for me uh, for quite quite a while now. Um, but I, I also want to acknowledge that I think something is happening uh, for me. It's a, the the logos is becoming more and more part of the D logos, um, a more more and more proper part, a more and more recognized part, the sensed part. Um, a sensed presence, and um, uh, I, de- I, def- I definitely feel that there's. I'm getting increasingly um, um, <clears throat> enthusiastic. I almost want to use the ancient meaning of that word when I'm uh, in, in in these conversations that I'm having, and it it also feels um, uh, almost like a synchronicity. Um, although I, I don't, I'm very critical of that part of Young, but nevertheless. Um, the, the 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 people that have been coming to me if that's the right way to put it that makes it egocentric but who i'm encountering like uh, like like rick Repetti and like there's just just right it's just been like uh i've been taken aback by it a- and also the conversations i see uh paul having with other people jonathan having with other people um yeah i feel like it's at a different um a, a di- we're at a different octave uh than we were before um mm-hmm. and um and about love um the epistemology and the ontology of love is go- i'm going very deep in it uh um, i read of morello's book on the the movement that's going on amongst a bunch of scholars um to, to make the argument that aquinas should be properly understood as a neoplatonist who makes use of aristotle the way plotinus did and that the closest analog of aquinas is plotinus not aristotle um mm-hmm. and, and they're making a very good case for this morello clark uh really a powerful case and then that is intersecting with the uh my ongoing reading reading of dc schindler I, I recommended his book is the best book i've ever read on plato and this book and this goes towards your point love and the postmodern predicament um by dc schindler um paul i think you well sorry paul Vanderclay. i think you <laughs> well both of you both of you uh i think you would love this book um the, the, the relationship between love and the three, the three transcendentals, uh, the relationship with love and being uh, I've, I've been scribbling notes in this about, and I'd like to talk about that at some point, if it's okay. Yes. About yes. a deepening of the understanding of participatory knowing and its relationship to, to love. But this, um, this book is, uh, I've been lucky I'm reading these really thin books that are profound. <laughs> all of that is by way of saying that all of this is like this right now for me. And, yeah, the epistemology and the ontology um, and where they come together in participation of love is, is central to my thinking right now. Um, I'm reading. <laughs> a, I'm sorry, that, that was not a laugh of contempt. That was a laugh of like, what? Um, I'm reading more theology now than anything. Right. Than anything else right now? <laughs> uh, because um, the work of Clark and D.C. Well, it's it's on this border between philosophy and theology, Um uh, it, it, and so, it, it, I, 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 it's. I'm finding it um, where the deepest thinking I can see right now—that's the response to the meaning crisis—is taking place, and that seems to be not not anything I foresaw or or, or or anything I imposed. It just seems to be emerging out of where, you know, I'm, I'm like Socrates. I'm following the logos where it goes, and this is where it seems to be leading me. So that's sort of a long-winded answer to your question, but that's how it oh, is.
0: That's beautiful. I'm, I'm sure uh, nobody that's listening to this or have listened to any dialogues between you guys in the past have any problems with long-winded, so we don't need to worry about that. Paul, <laughs> <laughs> well, what sorts of um, effects have maybe the recent dialogues you've been having with John and and others? There was a great one I also listened to. Um, there seems to be some sort of uh you have a discord sort of community too around your work, right, John? And there was a couple of yes. gentlemen facilitating a great conversation between yep. you two maybe a month ago. Yes. As well, um, Paul, what, what sorts of effects have, have you, are you experiencing over this long multi-year
2: discourse with John? Well, I, 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 I agree with, uh, with everything that with, with what John said in terms of affection and love, I mean, John has given us what, part of what's amazing to me is that when, so Strawn, who is in South Africa, he first started listening to John and says, oh, you have to listen to him. And Strawn's pretty persistent. I mean, he sends me a lot of emails as John well knows. And, um, and, and so I, the, I listened to John and when I first started bringing John into my videos, um, you know, there was a lot of pushback from Christians, especially, um, you know, we don't, you know, we want we don't want anything that has a Buddhist tag on it is, you know, going to get reactive. Christian communities have been, and, and this Christian communities have been quite reactive probably for the last thousand years or longer. Um, it's it's deep in Christianity's DNA in some ways, partly because of, you know, how it began. You can see that in the New Testament period. Um, you know, it's dealing with the, the larger Hellenistic culture. It's a sort of a breakout sect of Judaism initially. And, you know, there's a lot of... There's always fears of assimilation. That's right. There's fears of assimilation. There's fears of persecution. There's and then, even after Christianity becomes ascendant in the West, um, all these all these intramural fights there there's, there tends to be a lot of defensiveness in Christianity. And when there isn't defensiveness, there's fear of syncretism, assimilation, et cetera, et cetera. And so that um, that has led in many ways to churches sort of always doubling down on their tribalism, appealing to the base. you don't you don't lose your job appealing to your own narrow tradition and sticking to it. So um, part of what I've I've seen happening both in my relationship with John and in the communities that have, developed. I mean, the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis Discord server that began. And and in both our cases, John and I didn't start these Discord servers. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the Bridges of Meaning Discord server was begun by some of the members of my local meetup who were enjoying the meetup so much, they, and I would talk about it on my channel and people would express disappointment that there was nothing available to them locally. So we started this sort of as a way that even we knew, even though we knew it wouldn't be local, it's something they could participate in and also for the purpose of pursuing what has now become estuary of planting local groups where people could not just meet online, but be able to have local conversations. But what's been amazing has been the, um, the embrace of Christians for John's work and seeing John as a good faith partner. It's, it's one thing for me to see him as such, partly just because of how I'm wired temperamentally. I am very open and I am very trusting. And very quickly, I, I got a sense that John was very much a trustworthy partner and, and someone that we could have some real relationship and interchange with and some honesty with and give and take on both sides but also the um, embrace of John's work by many of the Christians in my circles that initially, you know, you know, sent me emails. You know, you should not be talking to John Vervecki and yada yada yada. Um, this is dangerous. Um, he's going to lead you astray, et cetera, et cetera. But many, many people have now you know, the awakening from the meaning crisis as a 50 video series is is not a, is a challenging undertaking <laughs> for many people. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but um, I think many, many people have now seen him as a good faith conversation partner that seriously is looking for the truth. He will be honest about his beliefs. Um, he will be clear, he will be gentle, and he'll, he'll be generous. And so I agree with John that what we're seeing in this space, it's bigger than just John and I, or the three of us, or Throw and Peugeot. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing a lot of really productive conversations, between, especially between Christians and those who either don't go to church or are not theists in one form or another, but also who are entering into this space with a posture of not defensiveness, but appreciative inquiry. And I know all these things are buzzwords in Christian communities, so I really have to be careful because I'm not trying to trigger people, but people both have a sense of, it's not necessarily a threat to my um, Christian profession. I can be secure in myself and engage in this conversation and come away quite likely with a sense that um, God is using this to, to, to deepen my faith and even in many respects, strengthen my convictions. I don't see myself in these last four years as necessarily believing less or being less reformed or less a faithful minister in the Christian Reformed Church. I think actually I'm I've developed capacity for being a better evangelist. So that's, that's what I've seen happening. Yeah. I think the big difference is
0: when you are so accustomed to, I think, I think about the sorts of debates, public debates that happened, especially around the time of like the, the origins of the new atheist movement. And you would see, let's take a Sam Harris versus a William Lane Craig as one example. What characterized those sorts of conversations to me was primarily a Philia Nikea versus mm-hmm. a Philea Sophia, yes. And they were beneficial in some sense to me. I think back to my college days, I suppose, in a sense. Like, and this isn't to be disparaging of Doctor Craig's work, which I do see as beneficial in many regards. But that sort of classic Christian apologetic stuff is really preaching to the choir. Uh, it's addressing insecurities that Christians primarily face. Um, but it's not the same thing that I see happening between the two of you, thankfully. And even in the conversation that happened between John yourself, um, Jordan Peterson, Bishop Barron, Jonathan Peugeot, if anything, John, one of my, one of my feedbacks coming out and listening to that conversation was like, I I really wish John would have given more pushback, um, to, to Bishop Barron and Jonathan Peugeot in particular to go, Hey, you know, like There's a reason why we entered into the secular age. There's a reason why the enlightenment, and you certainly voiced those things as well. But when people get that sense that someone is not um, in it to win it, when they've actually like unplugged from this culture war matrix that we all find ourselves within, um, that that sort of mutually accelerating disclosure that you talk about, John, is really possible. And and it starts with building trust. and And I see that happening between you two. One of the things I wanted to do in today's conversation is kind of be like, um, you know, the fly on the wall as I've listened to some of the dialogues and there were things that I wanted to pull out and go, all right, let's, I want to pick at these a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, I do like, I invite both of you. This is difficult, John, when you're in these sorts of conversations and you're sort of outnumbered, but I, I do really want to encourage you to like, give both Paul and I the pushback. Um, I well, like see it. Uh, go ahead. Uh,
1: no, I will, but, uh, but, but you know, m- m- the, the overriding characteristic I get from the, uh, the kind of Harris uh, uh, Lane, Lane kind of debates and those is the futility of them. Yes. Um, and so um, as somebody who is trying to address and alleviate the meeting crisis, uh, exercises of futility are something that are almost anathema to me. Mm. Uh, human beings are suffering. You know with with the, the, they're on the precipice of despair and feeling their lives are futile is one of the dimensions of meaninglessness and then having the so-called intellectual elites exemplify this um where the only thing that comes out of it is just an enhancement of tribalism that's something i want to i want to resist so I, I do want to do what you're asking, Yeah, uh, you know, and I do feel John and the two Pauls. It feels very Christian, even in the naming. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Um, I, I, I do. I do. I, I, I but I, have always tried to be very honest uh, with both of you and I will do that, but uh, I hope you understand that I, I, I always, I always want to temper the relationship of the dialogos logos is more important to me than any particular proposition. Mm-hmm. So any pushback will always be tempered with, um, you know, a willingness on my part. And I, I try to exemplify it of giving ground of moving, right. If I no, no, so every pushback, if I can use the metaphor will be counterbalanced with a moving towards you. Um, I, I, that's what I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be perfect in this or anything, but that is, that is what I aspire to do. I aspire to keep those. It's almost like the catapatic cataphatic and apophatic movements, right. I want to, I want them to keep, keep with each other always at all times. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't want to speak on behalf of Paul, but I will. I think we both
0: feel the same that we want to make those sorts of movements. And so that, um, you know, that really does seem like good faith conversation is continuing to happen. It's
1: desperately. And I I key on that word, by the way, it's desperately needed right now. It's right now. Like I've said, and I'll say it again, if people from my work find a way to return to any of the world religions and find a home there. Yes. I good. I'm all I'm saying is that it's clear evidence that there's a demographic that that is not currently working for. And I am trying to address them as best I can while remaining in good faith dialogue from the wisdom traditions that I think we all need to continuously learn from. Mm -hmm. That's and that is the position I will keep sticking to because that is where I feel I belong and where I feel where I'm being authentic and genuine. Yeah.
0: So where I'd love to set the table today, guys, is to maybe compare some of those dialogues of what I would say are typical of the secular age um, in the West. Um, The dialogues, let's say, between a hypothetical, it's not just limited to these two, a Sam Harris and a William Lane Craig. And so much of these dialogues, debates, really, arguments, um, especially around the time of that sort of rise of new atheism, seemed to be about really no one ever gave proper categorization and definition to what they meant when they invoked the word God. And I think that was one of the benefits to Peterson's public debates with with Sam Harris was we need to really assess uh, and not just assume uh, you know John I think you mentioned in the past you know we need we need to take a little Wittgenstein Wittgensteinian approach here and go <laughs> let's let's reassess what the language that we're using even yeah. means and so in a lot of ways I look back on those sorts of arguments and debates and they happen all over with internet apologists and internet angry atheists and um I see people talking past each other and what they're typically talking about is setting that term God still within a very modern frame. So what it seems like the argument has been about is about whether or not a supreme supernatural being exists in an arena of other beings. So the thing that might come to people's minds when they talk about, does God exist? And when they invoke that three letter word, God is they picture either, you know, the, the, white haired bearded man on top of the Sistine Chapel painted by Michelangelo reaching out his finger to Adam, right? That might be one image that comes to mind. Or I think one in more recent popular culture has been uh, the the character in the DC comics mythos, the Dr. Manhattan uh, from Watchmen. If you're familiar with those graphic novels, it's also become an HBO series. It was a movie. Um, And so what you see are people conceiving of when they think of God as a Paul, you've called it like a super thing, right? We extrapolate all these human characteristics and qualities and we think of a supreme being, but we're still thinking of the supreme being as just being atop a sort of hierarchy of beings, you know, and it doesn't get to what the word God has meant, even in the classic Christian Mm -hmm. tradition of the past. So. Uh, what I'd like to do to get the dialogue going is to bring up maybe um, a proposal for how we could better use that three-letter word God and and see if you guys are in agreement. And to do so, I want to share my screen because I got a couple of quotes. And I always find that when you quote something, um, especially for those on video, there's disengagement if there's not a a visible piece as well. So I'm going to share my screen and just make sure everybody can see this as well. So All right. You guys seen that picture of Dr. Manhattan right there? Okay, great. So I think the the sorts of arguments about God in the secular age have been largely marked by this sort of conceiving of God as Dr. Manhattan. Um, And what we need to do is we need to shift the dialogue into a better understanding of what that term God means. And I think we can talk about God in two senses. There's God as a metaphysical term, which would mean that which is ultimately necessary. Um, you know, Tillich's ground of being, Uh, we have these philosophical categories of necessary and contingent. So in order for there to be anything at all, what is it that being itself um, wells up from what is the source and font of it. So when we talk about God, we're thinking of it in those terms, but there's also thinking of God in an existential sense. And I think this is the way Peterson often invokes God, as one example, um, is to think about, what functions as sitting atop the hierarchy of our values as our ultimate concern. That's a Tillich word as well. And we see that embodied in the sum total of our daily life and activity. So I'm going to bring out a couple of quotes here from David Bentley Hart, who is going to kind of expound on God as ultimately what is ultimate, ultimately necessary, ultimate reality, the ground of being, and then we'll talk about God as an existential term. And I'd like to get your guys feedback on these. So um, again, this is from heart and I brought hit brought up this specific quote on multiple occasions, talking about your work, John, but Mm -hmm. this is from the experience of God being consciousness bliss. Good book. Yeah. It's a very important one. Everyone should have in their library. I think God is not only the ultimate reality that the intellect and the will seek, but is also the primordial reality with which all of us are always engaged in every moment of existence and consciousness, apart from which we have no experience of anything whatsoever. Or to borrow the language of Augustine, God is not only beyond my utmost heights, but also more inward to me than my inmost depths. To speak of God properly then is to speak of the one infinite source of all that is, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, Uncreated, uncaused, perfectly transcendent of all things, and for that very reason, absolutely imminent to all things. God, so understood, is not something posed over against the universe in addition to, nor is he the universe itself. He is not being, at least not in the way that a tree, a shoemaker, or a god is a being. He is not one more object in the inventory of things that are, or any sort of discrete object at all. Rather, all things that exist receive their being continuously from him who is the infinite wellspring of all that is in whom to use the language of Christian scriptures, all things live and move and have their being. In one sense, he is beyond being. If by being one means the totality of discrete finite things. I think this is what is a key difference between the maybe modernist debates on this and, what I think is going to characterize a new post-secular age. Sorry, I interrupted the quote there. Continuing on, in another sense, he is being itself in that he is the inexhaustible source of all reality, the absolute, which the contingent is always utterly dependent, the unity and simplicity that underlies and sustains that diversity of finite and composite things, infinite being, infinite consciousness, infinite bliss from whom we are, by whom we know and are and in whom we find our only true consummation. So that, again, for me would be, if we're going to talk about God in the metaphysical sense, I think David Bentley Hart gives one of the best definitions in the Christian tradition of that. Um, Let's talk about Tillich now. This is from Tillich's, uh, Tillich gave a really important sermon in New York. Uh, I can't remember the year this was, but this is a, if you're going to read any Tillich, I would as an introductory, I'd say, find online the depth of existence. It's a sermon till it gave um, post-war, post-World War II. but here's the to invoke a sort of more of the existential sense of the, what the term God can mean. The depth of thought is always a part of the depth of life. Most of our life continues on the surface. We are enslaved by the routines of our daily lives in work, and pleasure, in business and recreation. We are conquered by an innumerable hazards, both good and evil. We are more driven than driving. We do not step to look at the heights above or the depths below us. We are always moving forward, although usually in a circle, which finally brings us back to the place from which we first moved. We are in constant motion and never stop to plunge into the depth. We talk and talk and never listen to the voices speaking to our depth and from our depth, We accept ourselves as we appear to ourselves and do not care what we really are. Like hit-and-run drivers, we injure our souls by the speed which we move on the surface, and then we rush away, leaving our bleeding souls alone. We miss, therefore, our depth and our true life. It is only when the picture that we have of ourselves breaks down completely, which to me is, I think, part of the meaning crisis, Only when we find ourselves acting against all the expectation we had derived from that picture, and only when an earthquake shakes and disrupts the surface of our self-knowledge that we are willing to look into a deeper level of our being. Today, a new form of this method has become famous, the so-called psychology of depth. It leads us from the surface of our self-knowledge into levels where there are recorded which we know nothing about on the surface of our consciousness. It shows us traits of character, which contradict everything that we believe we know about ourselves. It can help us to find the way into our depth, although it cannot help us in an ultimate way, because it cannot guide us to the deepest ground of our being and all being the depth of life itself. The name of this infinite and inexhaustible depth and ground of all being is God. That depth is what the word God means. And if that word has not much meaning for you, translate it and speak of the depths of your life, the source of your being, of your ultimate concern, of what you take seriously without any reservation. Perhaps in order to do so, you must forget everything traditional that you have learned about God, perhaps even that word itself. For if you know that God means depth, you know much about him. You cannot call You cannot then call yourself an atheist or unbeliever, for you cannot think or say life has no depth. Life itself is shallow. Being itself is surface only. If you could say this in complete seriousness, you would be an atheist. But otherwise, you are not. He who knows about depth knows about God. So the questions I want to bring to you guys here is, does the, In the post-secular age that I think we're moving to, where the dialogue is shifting and we're re-understanding God, perhaps in a more ancient light, um, one that, again, isn't exclusive to the Christian tradition. There have been people in the Islamic and Jewish and certainly in the Hindu, which, of course, is like a name given by colonials to <laughs> the religion of India. The question then, for me, then, is not does God exist But what is God like? And I feel like that's what's been shifting in your dialogue together. So, in other words, what should be of ultimate concern? And then finally, the question for me is Does the metaphysical God, that which is ontologically, metaphysically necessary, and the existential God match in our lives? To me, this is like what's at the heart of Kierkegaard's message and the Kierkegaardian challenge is. To be an authentic self, we need to have a synthesis of the infinite and the finite to actually be grounding ourselves in that, to have the existence of our daily lives actually be grounded in that which is metaphysically, ultimately necessary. So that was a lot there. I wanted to get some initial reactions, starting with you, John, because I know this may be a point where um, certainly... I share more in common with the way I interpret reality in some regards with Paul than with you. So I wanna start with you to see what your initial thoughts are, points of resonance, and maybe potential points of dissonance with both of those definitions.
1: First of all, I I would like to say that I agree with you. Um, um, I I, I see both Jonathan and Paul, uh, Paul Paul Vanderclay, that's good, Paul V and Paul A, that's how we'll do it. Um, uh a, a, as more radical uh than uh than perhaps their uh they might be initially received um jonathan is, is 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 stabbing at something very deep and um i mean that in both senses of the word uh the, the 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 profound critique of nominalism and its pervasiveness in our thought i think needs to be made more central in what jonathan's doing and paul um uh, I know Paul, you're, you're, you, you, you see yourself within, squarely within their tradition and I, I'm not gonna challenge that in any way, but I wanna say you are doing something of significance with the God one, the God two. You're, you're trying to uh, get, and, and, and it's more than uh, a reconceptualization, right? You're trying to reopen up relationship. That's what I see you trying to do. So I, I, I agree in that sense with uh, Pauli, that I think there's something significant going on. Uh, I think um, what's happening right now is a deep reflection on, uh, uh, on God. I, I would put it to you this way, first of all, initially, but before we, I move towards the, the quotes. Um, first of all, I don't think we just have uh, the supreme being, God, Wittgenstein, we should pay, to, pay attention to the form of life. Um, and if there was some recent research i think around 2005 you know and those were the teenagers of the time so they're the adults of now um and they called it uh they're, they're the most americans was moralistic therapeutic deism yes um that the main function of god uh, was to inspire us to the good and god is a purely private um uh, affair and, and and we like this and we love it and i think this is a disastrous place to get to and so does D.C. schindler I think it's the rain shadow of this, uh, the religious civil wars of the 17th century and the birth of the secular state as, look, look, when we when we bring this into the public, we kill each other. So what we'll do is we'll keep it private and it's subjective and it's feeling and it's other than reason, which means it eventually becomes less than reason. And by the way, a Christian DC Schindler makes that argument, not me. He says, when we, when we do that, that's the inevitable consequence. He calls it mythology, the hatred of the logos. Um right? Um, and so I think that's the context. And so it's not just the supreme being, it's the supreme moralistic therapeutic deity, uh, kind of the de- of deism. Um, and, and so I, I, I think that is a disastrous position, because I think what I hear us talking about is an intersection of terms, these three, God, being, and reality that's what i and then the attended transcendentals truth goodness and being these are doing this to my mind right now Definitely. And, and, and 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 what and those were what you were not allowed to talk about with moralistic therapeutic deism right and so for me this is why there's a cusp there's a kairos here we everybody both within and without religion i think into the degree to which they are they're being Kierkegaardian. remember Kierkegaard's big thing is when people avoid the revelation of authenticity by avoiding angst. They avoid it. So I'm not talking about people who are avoidant right now with distraction and stimulation. Not and, that level and, of and,
0: despair. There's different yeah, levels yeah. of despair.
1: I'm not talking about that. I'm So, right, that's that's another thing. But for the people who are trying to respond rather than just react to the meaning crisis, I think God, being, and realness, and reality are all circling, are all being brought up, and and the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. We wanna talk about these again in a deep way. And I think, and from the outside, this is how it appears to me. And I, I, so I don't mean this as a critique, it's just an observation. Christians wanna talk about it, but they're struggling to talk about it because they feel ensnared by this framework, right? Which was put by the way in place for good reason with the birth of the secular state. The, the, The religious civil wars of the 17th century were horrific, were horrific. They horrified and terrified people, right, in a deep fashion, and I get that, right, and then, and, and then we re-traumatized ourselves with World War II, where we said, okay, we'll do a political ideological version of this, and then, oh no, look at how bad this, so let's just keep this, right, right, but of course that's, that's useless. That vacuum is filled. So we have the simultaneity of people disenfranchising from politics, whereas everything is becoming deeply po- political, and the political is just pseudo-religious. So that's the framework I, I see this discussion as taking place within. I don't know if that if that resonates with either one of you uh, or both of you, but that's the context in which I, I want to talk about this. I I, I want to talk about, I like, I, I think unless we can really learn. <laughs> And that doesn't mean just nostalgia, but really learn how to fall in love with being. We can't respond to the meaning crisis. So being realness. One of the things, one of the way I'm trying, I am starting to hear how people use this word in this recent dialogue is God is something like the intimacy of the transcendent and in the depths of my intimacy, and then the depths of my intimacy, finding something transcendent. Like God is right there. God is, like, you know, Schindler talks about, you know, God is being, you, you know, you can read Aquinas is saying, God is the ocean of being. But, but being points to the intelligibility of this, if I can use these two words slightly differently, whereas God points to the intimacy that's also transcendent, and the transcendent that's also intimate, right? Yeah. And, and then we're trying, and that's what I'm seeing, if you'll allow me, as, right, the being is the, is the ontological or metaphysical, I would prefer ontological, um, um, and, and God, it, God is the intimacy, trans, the intimate transcendent and the transcendently imminent, of a, and, yeah. and, 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 but there's the craving, like uh, I've been saying this for quite a while, I think I mentioned in the Four Horsemen, like the meaning crisis is in, in many ways an intimacy crisis, it's a desire for connection, but it's not, a, it's not the connection that you have to something that is subsumable and consumable to you. It's eros, it's the desire to be intimate with something that is other. Like Murdoch said it beautifully, love is the recognition that something other than yourself is real, right? And, 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 and this is what I've been trying to get out with the participatory knowing. It's not fusion, it's not homogeneity, it's contact with separation, it's intimacy. And I think that's what, what people are longing for. And so I think the Tillich quote, see I'm getting to what you put up, I think the twil- Tillich quote, Tillich was trying to get the ontological and that together. I think, my, I mean, I love Tillich. You, you're bringing out Hart who's clearly from the Neoplatonic tradition, like thoroughly. That's like, Plotinus would almost agree to everything you wrote there, right? right? And then Tillich is the other great. Tillich is, mm, Tillich is more of an influence on me than Heidegger. Um, it's profound influence on me. And I see Tillich trying to express with ultimate concern that our relationship to realness is not an abstract one. I'm going to mention this again, and then I'll let Paul talk. I was just thunderstruck. I was reading a letter from Spinoza, and, and, and I keep coming back to this because it's just like went And he said, God does not have abstract thoughts. And what Spinoza was trying to get at is if we remain at the level of abstract thought, we are not in conformity with God. And when you read the ethics and realize all this abstract logical stuff is to get you to a place of intimacy, of deep participation in God, that just hit me as a profound thing, right? And so I think the challenge is this, for me, is, and this is where Paul and I uh, rub up against each other, uh, Paul B and I, and I I think you and I too, Paul A., um, I think there's something really important about love and intimacy here. Um, but I do wonder if Christianity can get out of the straitjackets it's in, um, that, that I've already, uh, like there's deep reasons why the moralistic, therapeutic deism is predominant. And I would say even within, it was certainly the, you know, certainly predominant in a lot of what I was hearing and a lot of what I continue to hear um and i'm wondering i'm wondering to what degree I, what degree we can talk about this in a way that will allow i'm really struggling here so please forgive me my friends but how uh, we can talk about this in a way that engages us at a point of Kierkegaardian authenticity without requiring everybody to come into complete agreement metaphysically. Mm-hmm. Um, because typically we've, we, let me use one distinction from, uh, from Durkheim and then I'll shut up, right? Durkheim says that like we can pursue mechanical solidarity, which is we get intimacy and cooperation and co-being by, uh, by, by pursuing a homogeneity. Right? And, right? and then he compares that to the division of labor in society, where actually the, we, we, make, we make people distinct, but completely interdependent in their distinctness. And to be fair to me, um, you can read St. Paul is saying that when he's talking about the body of Christ and the foot and the head, not, and the foot not trying to be the head and all that. So I'm not introducing something completely foreign to the Christian tradition. Um, but what, what I mean is, um, is it possible... And I don't mean this as an insult, please. Is it possible for the body of Christ to truly include the Buddhist and the Hindu and the Muslim and the Taoist and the Neoplatonist mm-hmm. uh, without the attempt of some sub, of subsumption, of just subsuming it and saying, but in the end, it's, it's, it's homogeneity. Um, and, and that's the thing that concerns me. Um, that's where I sort of, that's where I find Um, I'm sort of hesitant to identify with any of the world. I don't call myself a Buddhist either, by the way, Uh, precisely because um, I think we're facing, um, I think there's good reason why we're in this place of novelty and kairos that we've all acknowledged, because I think there is something unique in what we're facing right now. Uh, We're coming to this weird um, constellation of postmodernism um and then the emergence of secular religions that are tearing your country apart as far as i can see um and therefore threatening the whole world because the united states is the tsunami that can drown all shores hey you guys Um, have hockey as your secular religion so yeah but you know (laughs) but you
2: know we've got
1: football you've got hockey it's (laughs) well i was talking more about the political arena yeah i know i know um and that was not a criticism that was a concern Yeah, it's a good
2: criticism.
1: Yeah, they're very concerned. So I I just, there's something new here. There's an opportunity. I uh, I think we are going to, I know Tillich talks about the God beyond the God of theism in another famous essay. I think we are at that place that he foresaw. And I suppose I'll put it this way and then I'll shut up. I think Christianity faces a choice. A choice of doing, and a choice that it's made before in the past when it met Platonism, and then when it met Aristotelianism, and then when it met science. There's another choice point here right now, and I see what's happening as a as that kind of deep choice point for Christianity. I I will not presume to say what I think Christians should do. I think that would be arrogant. Um, I just think that. I'm concerned that some of the things that Paul talked about, Paul V, are going to predominate and Christianity, isn't going to be able to hear the call of what's happening right now. That's my deepest concern. And I'm trying to state this with affection and respect. Oh, that's great, John. It's excellent. These are good okay. critiques. I certainly have yep. some thoughts, but I want to give Paul the opportunity to respond to him first. I'm sorry for talking a long time, but I didn't want to just that. No apologies needed. That. I wanted to get like the... like.
2: That's really good. Where I'm coming from. Really good. I don't think anyone that pastors a local church has any question about the fact that Christianity is in some straitjackets that it can't get out of. Mm. Because mm-hmm. now I, so there, I don't know if it's, I think it still exists. There used to be a satirical Christian publication called The Wittenberg Door. And, um, and and uh, a regular common, uh, a regular um, column in the Wittenberg Door was entitled "Dogs Who Know the Lord," um, <laughs> and it's funny and it's satirical and it's a good time. And I used to love the Wittenberg Door. Anybody who follows my videos know something of my sense of humor. But but there's a deep there's a deep sense in which Christianity asserts that dogs do know the Lord, but they don't know the Lord in any way that will afford them entrance to, let's say, a confessional church where they appeal before the council and make a profession of faith. You know, I, I David Bentley Hart is such a beautiful writer that, even though I don't know how I got comped into his Substack, but somehow I did. Maybe somebody who listens to me uh, wanted to influence me or gave me a complimentary um, subscription to it, which I really appreciate because he's, he's just a, a deeply beautiful, insightful, powerful writer. And his influence on the people who are now around me, influencing me is, is deeply profound. I often have the sense, reading David Bentley Hart, that um, some of the temptation of Narcissus that I read his words, and they're so captivating and beautiful that they I have almost have an out of body experience. And here, especially in this season of the church's attention upon the incarnation i want to make an appeal for dogs who know the lord because and i really love what you that quote you brought in from spinoza john mm. because i think that's right in that i think it's deeply christian and and this is what pushed back against many who at the time You know, the the author of the gospel of Judas imagined that Judas is the hero of the story because Jesus could then be released from his body Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Jesus would no longer have to suffer the indignities of of common human necessity and and especially the, the painful, catastrophic reality of decay. I mean, that word, I mean, it was 15 years ago when, you know, I was working through part of the beauty of being a local Christian pastor is that you're forced to sort of keep an eye on the knitting in that there are people in front of me who are, who don't listen to my videos and they're never going to. And they all so much of this language. I mean, if I put Paul Tillich or Carl um, Barth or even David Bentley Hart in front of them—they're never going to read those books, and they're never—and—and um, and the, much of the language in the books and much of the language that we reliably put out will simply go over their heads. You know, again, another piece of my—you know—deep appreciation for what John has done is. Even though you know, I, I tease John and some people in my community say I listen to John Vervecki. I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> the fancy Vervecki words, yes, <laughs> yeah, the fancy Vervecki words, as Job said. Um, but you know, John has has consistently talked about an ecology of practice, mm-hmm. and you know, dog dogs who know the Lord are one hundred percent practice to the best of our knowledge, Um, because their knowing of the Lord is not the kind of thing that involves what we human beings are capable of. But human beings live in a range of capacity with respect to all of this ideation and abstraction. Yet Christianity has long, I mean, the Christian God begins the story in a way that no Greek God would by getting his hands into the clay of the earth. I may be wrong about the group, but and making making a making a clay image and breathing his um, his breath into it and creating a nefesh by which it is this embodied, it's this meeting of heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that the deep challenge for me as a pastor is. is is not only trying to help the church get out of its straitjacket, which quite frankly is nothing new. I don't think any close reader of the new Testament can imagine that for all of the, you know, for all of the excitement about what the early church did and believed, I I think, did you ever read the book of first Corinthians? (laughs) Um, That, that we would be under any under any illusion that simply presenting them with the best words possible would resolve mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all of our problems, and I think this is perhaps Luther's greatest um, Luther Luther's greatest misconception. Because I think that was at the heart of his reform that he was, well, if we get the best texts now that we have the printing press and we have a better reach at yes. you know, if you read yes. Luther and Erasmus, you know, if we get the best words in front of them and, and we use reason to sort of get all these words in line, then, you know, surely if I just present these things to the Roman Catholic hierarchy, they'll say, Oh, of course. It'll it'll all be great, and then of course it wasn't. And then Luther and Karlstadt have their falling out, and the Protestant Reformation just becomes this, this sort of you know deconstruction of of what had become Christendom. And, and at the same time, you know, I'm a, I remain a Protestant. Um, I think also Protestantism was able to recapture something else. And 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 partly by virtue of the fact that it, it's quite clear to me that the 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 church-state combination that had been medieval Catholicism had gotten you know terrifically tyrannical in many respects, and Incredible. and that power had to be undone. So. I, part of the reason, and I know I continue to fight battles on this with respect to God, number one and God, number two was that if I were, you know, I I really like the arenic and the agentic and, you know, you can use imminent and transcendent. Often I'll use general and special revelation just because that's a language that people who've had a degree of catechesis can maybe appropriate, but number one and number two are so on one hand flexible and, um, but, but they're not no nobody's going to be afraid of number 1 and number 2 and and the goal i believe of the christian faith is that in fact the, the goodness of god and and the glory The glorious potential which God has clearly built into this world, which I think all of us see in our aspirations, is is, is that which will be manifest. And when I look at, for example, Christian eschatology, you know, unlike as so many of my, you know, as american evangelicals and fundamentalists imagine that we drift up into the clouds and live in the skies when we're you know when we're gone which is you know again any anybody who knows a little bit of theology will say i'm I'm not sure that's i'm not sure that's what jesus intended with the resurrection um but that you know god will be all in all and you know Christianity has always said, and I think embodied in its continual transformation. And, and that's a dynamic within Christianity, which is difficult, because on one hand, there's this strain in Christianity that always wants to keep going back to its roots. And so the, the Orthodox are like, well, we via our divine liturgy, we will not change. Okay. And the Roman Catholics, well, via our connection with the Um, with the Bishop Peter, the Bishop of Rome, and the hierarchy, we will not change. And Protestants with their, with our sola scriptura commitment to this book, we will not change. You know, all have consistently been changing all along in order to try to stay faithful. So there there is within Christianity, I think, a, a confession that, all of our approximations are insufficient, and and you know I've learned a lot about um, you know some of these other traditions, Eastern non-Christian traditions that I knew almost nothing about, just simply by virtue of the shape of my life. But within Christianity, we've I, I you know I learned these things as a as a teenager in catechism class, and I learned them as a young adult and in Calvin seminary, which is a conservative reformed institution um, that, that God is always beyond us. And, and, and the shape that God wishes, you know, I'm a Calvinist is, is also always beyond us. My total depravity does not um, no matter how much I strive, I will never get beyond that in this life. And, and so God will be beyond and his desires for the incarnation of his will in this world will be beyond our capacities and our labels. Yet the I think at the heart of Christianity is that while he may be beyond our capacity to understand and his faithfulness may be beyond our capacity to instantiate in our lives, he is fundamentally for us. And, and, and so we, you know, I love Hendrik de Kock, who was a rural Dutch Calvinist minister who started this offskiting, which is a, um, a split in the Dutch Reformed Church in the early part of the 19th century you know, he had this phrase, which Richard Mao has picked up, you know, follow that lamb wherever he goes. And, you know, to me, that's where we're at. That, um, the, the God of this universe who is, as I think David Bentley Hart beautifully articulated there, um, is for us. And, In this process, Christian eschatology says he is for us and he will finally succeed and we will be blessed by his success. And I I think um, given such an image of a God like that, who is not only high and lifted up, but is manifest in the glory, you know. I, I love God number one and God number two. I immediately went to Isaiah six. You know, Isaiah comes into the sanctuary and you know, <laughs> he meets God in, in the temple. It's like, who would have thought? You know, all the theology says that's where he's going to be. And you know, then there were these cherubim, you know, these winged six wings, not two. Um, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty holy, 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 three holies, you know, he's beyond any of our conception of him. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, his, his weight, his kavod, his fingerprints are all the way down to dogs who know the Lord, even though, um, we would, you know, we might train our dogs to fold their hands on for a YouTube video, but, um, this is, the, this is the level of application which being in ultimate goodness and power is determined to present to us. And I think that's... So then as a pastor of a local church... I've got words, I've got actions, got a little bit of an institution. There's a tradition. And, you know, especially in this season, the logos becomes flesh and tabernacled among us. And, you know, the beginning of the gospel of John, you know, you know, we have seen his glory, but of course, in the gospel of John, the height of that glory, you know, the book of signs, the beginning and the book of glory is you know the last part of the gospel of john which is of course the crucifixion well how is the crucifixion is glory so yeah i know. I, I i went on too long too but i no, no, that's what great. i see no it's great
0: um for both of you then the uh, i mean some of the follow up questions and feedback like i would immediately have is like Obviously, you have this picture in Isaiah 6, like you're talking about, and I think this is echoed in some sense in the Neoplatonic tradition, that when we begin to talk about the one, when we begin to talk about ultimate reality, that which we can think no higher than God in the metaphysical sense, we always have limitations of language, we have limitations of perception. Part of this is because in the Christian tradition, our finitude is by right ordering, so to have a finite perception of an infinite being is just that, that's that's not a that's not a sin problem, right? Christians would also then say, well, part of our problem that we experience, why we can't solve the nine dot problems of life, is not just because of our finitude, because but there's also something wrong with our framing. There's something that we would say is the presence of sin, and I mean that in not just in the harmartia, like missing the mark sense where I look and I go, like, John, when you originally did that nine dot problem in your lectures, I paused and I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And I couldn't, I had a framing issue, right? Part of it was my finitude of my mental capacity, but part of it was I was just missing the mark because I had gone through maybe some cultural programming in preschool, kindergarten, where I tend to look for boxes and neat triangles and color in between the lines. So there's also the sense in which we have been born into the world and under the presence of cosmic sin that Christians would affirm, like there's something misordered, which keeps us from seeing what should be of ultimate concern to us. The prophets, the Old Testament biblical prophets, to me, if I were to sum up what their message is, it's, you've made propositional claims about the metaphysical God. And yet the existential God, if we were to evaluate the sum total of your life and your actions shows that you're worshiping idols. So there is something incongruent about these two. What I'm really interested in, 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 in the way you guys have dialogue. And I think the future of dialogue in like an increasingly post-secular age is that I see some positive movement towards among Christians and even, you know, John, you consider yourself a non-theist and going, okay, what do our words mean? when we use these particular words. So John, when you talk about like being and reality, Mm -hmm. I have no problem in my own mind, making that substitute for the three letter word God, because what I see you doing is you're saying, I'm reaching for that, which is of ultimate concern and is what is ultimately necessary. And I'm looking for conformity and adherence with that. And so I have no problem with that because I, I I see that as being congruent once we kind of take the crowbar and we peel underneath the layers of language. Um, and so I, I see no problem with that. Um, and I do feel, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, John, I, I feel like what's at the heart of your project is in some sense, you are trying to match, and again, feel free to correct me on this,
1: oh, you're okay. trying
0: to help people match metaphysical God with what should be of ultimate concern existentially in our lives. Is that fair? How would you respond Yeah, that's fair.
1: Qualify that? Well, I wanna to respond to both the Pauls um, and give an, hopefully an integrated answer. I think, Paul A, that's a great question to pose to me. Um, I, I think what you're saying is fair. Um, I agree with what Paul V just said, um, and, he, and he's right. I, 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 I worry about, and I criticize the idolatry, to use your language or my language, the tyranny of the propositional, and I hope that's not what we're doing here. Um, but um, let's talk a little bit about. I hope this isn't insulting. It's your term, the dogs that know, um, right? That, that and this this goes a little bit more towards the cosmic sense of sin, right? Yeah, but you know, there's another practice. It's called science, and we can't ignore it, and that practice inseminates our lives and is instantiated as an as a omnipresent ontology, which is technology, which has a life of its own and has magical, almost religious qualities for most of the dogs, if I can use that word again non-pejoratively. Right, uh, I don't like it because it sounds a little bit insulting, but it's, it's the term that Paul in, introduced. So I hope it's not being. I, I
2: actually meant dogs. I didn't mean people. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: well, there we go. Well, but but but, but you. But I, I think you were you were pointing to a continuum. Yes, right? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. But anyways, uh, the point I, I wanted to make is um, that, and this was Wittgenstein's point: people, uh, you know. There's a sense in which philosophy is unavoidable, um, even in a sort of a therapeutic liberation sense, because um, common sense, the the common sense shared worldview, um, Wittgenstein, set, Wittgenstein argued. Um, you know, we're often caught in the grip of a picture. We have a picture that we adhere to that we think makes sense, but and it's like what Augustine said about time. I know what time is until you ask me. We think the picture makes sense, and then when we When we get pressure put on the picture to try and right uh to articulate it we we, it falls apart in our hands and 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 i and and i think you're seeing this by the way paul's pointed at paul v like videos of christians going through deconstruction leaving the faith because they were caught in the grip of a picture right and they were not i'm not going to be they weren't pursuing philosophy or theology but something slams into that picture and the picture fractures because they're caught in the grip of a picture that doesn't actually carry understanding or wisdom. And for Wittgenstein, to use Frankfurt's term, this is the deepest kind of bullshit. So there is also a possibility for a lot of silent, right, a, a lot of silent, I don't know what to call it, vulnerability in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we need to, yeah, we yes, we, sh- we are doing this, right? But the point of this, the, the point of this reconstruction a reciprocal reconstruction is to reach back down into the level of practice because that's where the transformation has to occur. The, the perspectival and the procedural and the participatory levels, um, which is again, why I keep, I keep trying to bridge between these precisely because of that. So like I want to I want to talk about the four L's, right? And I want to try and talk about them from the level of, uh, of, of these three other things. I want to talk, because these are the ones that, uh, instead of these terms, and they're beautiful terms, and I use them myself, from from heart until it, but I want to go to, you know, the, the, the identity claims that are made. God is love, God is light, right? God is life, and God is logos, right? Because those terms stretch from the height of our conceptuality to the depth of our embodiment. And then I want to put these three words, the place from which we talk about them. Incarnation, embodiment, and incorporation, because they all overlap and they're all circling around each other right now And because I think of incorporation as pointing to distributed cognition in particular, right? And so the, I I want to talk about these things, right, in, in as new a way as possible, where we're as much as possible trying to see where we are bullshitting ourselves. And I include myself, I include myself, where we're bullshitting ourselves by being in the grip of a picture rather right, than understanding. This is, this is the deep, if you want to be really fair to me, this is the deep thing by I mean by the two worlds mythology. We have these various pictures of two worlds and mind and matter. And, right, and, and we have these pictures and people pronounce the pictures. That's what the propositions are doing. But they're, I feel that they're in the grip of these pictures. And this doesn't have to be at the level, like I said, of seminary. Right. The, the, the the Christians that that deconstruct out of their faith they're in the grip of something, and it and it's and that grip is often and, and Paul you've mentioned this it's Paul V it's it's modernity but modernity is science and technology it's not out there as an abstract idea it's here it's in the it's in your computer screen it's in your mic it's in everything around you like like but there's it's also like, no
0: escaping it I, I don't mean this yeah. as like an apologetic response but I'm I'm trying to pick at what you're, what point you're yeah. trying to make here, John, is like, it seems like what you're saying is like, people operate always within a picture. They have, they're, they're, we're storied creatures. So we always operate in this narrative framework. Our narrative perspective is limited. We all confess that you're saying a similar thing to what I was saying about either our finitude or the presence of sin, right? It's, yeah. is limiting, but we also have to act in the world a particular way. And so the question that I have is like, how do we, We, this is a, this is a difficult thing for Christians. This is a difficult thing for Paul and I, right? Because I think there's pluralism implications here and we need to get at that at some point here too, as well. But I think one of the concerns I've heard you voice is like, I think maybe you're concerned that let's say even the, the Christian story that Paul V and I inhabit, which may be different than, you know, the, the moral therapeutic deism you commonly brush across even our frame is limited because we claim Jesus as Lord, you know, and so but that. if we're yeah. to open up and say, okay, well, your problem is Paul and Paul, that we need to consider that maybe even that image could be an idol. This is certainly a concern other religions have of Christianity. It's a concern Islam has of Christianity that you have yeah. made an idol out of the invisible God. So not only is John or I should say Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah is in this temple like atmosphere in the in the holy of holies in heaven. And he goes, I'm a man of unclean lips. And you got these angels, these crazy creatures that day and night are saying, whoa, you've never seen that before. That's kind of what I think of when I think of the word holy. Have you ever seen that before? No, I haven't. There's this infinite, they've been doing this for all eternity. And then you jump ahead to this very clear, like appropriation of that in the apocalypse of John. And John is in a throne room. He is in the, 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 the utmost innermost courts of heaven. And he's a, sees a slain lamb on the throne right? So Christians like name, and we say the image of the invisible God is made manifest in Christ. But is there a suggestion here that, and again, you're not going to offend us because we need to, I'll speak for myself. I need to wrestle with this perpetually, right? Is there any sort of image of God, an idolatrous image? And if that's the case, how do you ever live in the world in any particular way? Because you have to live within a framework. So if I was like, well, I'm totally, I could be wrong about this then you're stuck in perhaps a different mode of despair that keeps you from
1: acting in the world a particular way. Well, I want to respond to that, and then I'll let Paul V talk. Um, um, First of all, I I also balance that with, you're never going to be free of a framework, relevance realization, right? Okay, so I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe in the sort of the pseudo Zen that passes for Zen in the West, where I get free of all framing and all perspectives. I think that's bullshit um yeah yeah well then you wouldn't be able to get off your couch um so i i so I'll keep in counterbalance okay um secondly i i i i do have a concern of jesus becoming an idol um rather than an icon yes very much but what i what i was just trying to say a few minutes ago is that reverberates back for me the the pictures uh the pictograms around jesus as christ i think Prevent Christians for 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 talking about love and light and life and logos in a way that will reach other people. Oh, definitely. You know, I was astonished, and I, I this is not meant to be self promotional, so please don't hear it that way. How many Christians said when I talked about agape, I talked about it better than any Christian they'd ever heard talk about it? That shocked me, right? And it's like, whoa, like, right? And, and, and I don't think it has to do anything with my particular skills or anything like that. It has to do with what I'm talking about right now. I think there's a way in which Christians have become hamstrung about these terms. So although I, I'm worried about the idolatry, I, where it, I see it more prominent is an inability to speak about the three L's, or the four L's, like I talked about, right? In a way that calls to us as embodied beings, Right. That's, that's what I see, right? Right. right? So many people, right, they deconstruct because they're in the grip of a fragile picture that can't sustain the blows of the world right now, or they feel starved within. Many of the non- nuns are nuns, not because of lack of belief, but because of lack of belonging. And people are not hearing that. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit hard. Preach. They're not hearing that right? And and I, my concern is Christianity has this pictography around Jesus that is preventing a new and needed new discussion about life, love, logos, and light that will allow us to re-understand un, re at these deep levels what we mean by God. That's my critique. That's what I'm trying to put at center right now. It, it, so it lines up with what you're saying, Paul, but it's 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 more than that, I, I, and it's this that's more is what is what what is grabbing my attention right now because I see elsewhere in philosophy, cognitive science, and it, even in some of the theology, people doing this. They're going, they're trying to go deep back and rebirth. I mean, and Christianity should be interested in rebirth, right? Interested in a rebirth. Like a deep rebirth. I think that's what Jonathan profoundly and provocatively means when he seems that Christianity might itself go through death and resurrection. He's saying something really profound there and really challenging to a lot of Christians. He's on, I mean, how he does it, I don't know. He stands in the depths of orthodoxy and speaks, speaks to the horizon of heresy and he manages to do that. And everybody goes, Oh, I love Jonathan. If I tried to do that. I'd get slammed. Right. But anyways, right. But that's what I'm trying to say. So I'm trying to be very deeply provocative, but I'm doing it I'm doing it I'm doing it as a call right a call to for a response from you i don't I'm, this is I do not want to be doing Philo Nikea. I do not want to be doing that. I do not want to be doing that right it, it, like it, you know that's it I'll shut up I, that's what I want to say
2: I, I, I don't find anything that you said there, John to be um there's no apologetics in there for me. No, I don't, uh, I, don't I don't hear any of it the there. That's the sort of pushback and, I want. And and I think part of the difficulty that is happening certainly within the church um but but often I think especially with those who are perhaps not as deep in the church as let's say you know, Paul and I have And continue to be is that this, this, this renewal of our stories and renewal of the images is in church, a perpetual, it's a perpetual project. Mm, mm -hmm. Now that, that is often not recognized outside the church for very good reasons partly because um there's always this tension i I, I still haven't found this Uh, peterson had a great little riff at one point um about you know change too much and you're gone change too little and you're gone and you have it in terms of opponent processing yeah this opponent processing is always within the church and in fact how that then scales out into the body of Christ is, you know, you know, super, super hardliners who are, you know, total way over on the conservative end of the spectrum that don't want to change at all. And then you're super open as people who are wanting to change everything all the time. These things, these things fractal down and out. In the church all the time, and so then to be to be within the church working on these things is you know we're, we're always doing that, and they're they're even in little sub communities like the Christian Reformed Church, even at Living Stones, um, you know to a degree yeah. within my own head, but beyond you know in terms of between denominations, the Orthodox, the Catholic, all of the Protestants, you know within the Catholics, within the Orthodox. I mean, these, these, this process is continually happening. And and, the, and you know I don't, I don't want to take anything away from Jonathan because I'm not saying that he got it from Chesterton. But what John talks about in terms of the continual resurrection of the church, Chesterton wrote about mm. in, I don't remember if it was Orthodoxy, I think it's The Everlasting Man. I mean, he has an entire chapter devoted to that where he looks at Christian history and says, it keeps coming around. You know, I look at, for example, um, very quickly when I saw Jordan Peterson, I saw some some pattern recognition of something that happened with Billy Graham. Now, that seems like a strange combination because in terms of their confessions, Billy Graham and Jordan Peterson seem to be almost contradictory. Especially if you look at Billy Graham through his son Franklin, let's say, um, who is not really the same as Billy. But this, it's difficult, even, it's difficult for us to know, even, even though the history was not long ago, that Billy Graham was filling, you know, stadiums around the world. And if you read something like, you know, don't look at the, don't watch the movie, read the book, um, Unbreakable um Louis Zampini, something like that um it's a phenomenal book about this guy who just endures the most horrendous suffering being at sea in a raft and then winding up in the worst japanese pow camp suffering unbelievable torture surviving all of that to come back to the united states to finally get a good job and marry the woman of his dreams only to be um only to find himself an alcoholic. And he has no idea, you know, he completely shipwrecks his life in a way that being lost at sea and being in a Japanese POW camp couldn't do. And he's doing it to himself with alcohol. And, you know, today we might say, we'll get into an AA program or get into detail, you know, whatever. But what happens to him is, you know, he goes to a Billy Graham, you know, crusade, and stops drinking and turns his life around and his life goes in a beautiful direction it's a remarkable story and so no john i i think um we're more with you than you think on this point Mm. because working pastorally with almost any person who is stuck because you know before there was therapy and all of this we've had you know, we've had pastoral ministry. And I think in many ways we've seen in the secular age, you know, a lot of new things created and psychology and and this has, you know, flown back and forth into the church and there's constant conversations about that too. But but people who are stuck are stuck in stories. And, and Christians are by no means, Christian pastors are by no means unaware of, of idol Jesus, um, appropriating and possessing congregations and even traditions. Mm -hmm. And that there's always a, a breaking of idols. Christianity is a, a very iconoclastic tradition, even as it creates new icons, because in many ways, the only way to break an icon is with another for human beings, because, you know, when Calvin talked about, you know, the, the mind, the human mind is a perpetual idol factory. And, and I think part of why we know this is we almost can't function without them. We need an idol in order to break the last idol and, and, and that frustration I think has been, you know, well known within the faith and um, there's a major and, iconoclasm and also going on the, right now, isn't there Paul? What, what's that?
0: <laughs> I mean, there's a major, in evangelical context in particular <sighs> Protestant context, there is a major massive, I don't know if we'll look back and say it's on Protestant Reformation scale in the future, but there's a massive iconoclasm, going on right now a collision of competing pictures of what christ is like what the christian way is what ethics ethical implications it's just it's a big one massive right
2: now and 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 the question is what will emerge right you know i don't know orthodox friends notwithstanding. i don't know to what degree paul of tarsus would find the current church you know, in any way recognizable compared to the kinds of things he planted. Mm. But then again, how on earth could we conceptualize how a first century person could in any way apprehend what is going on around us here in North America today? So we're always in this struggle. And um, I... You know, I would, I was just been reading some history of the French revolution this, this weekend, and it seems so timely. (laughs) So we always keep coming around to these things. And so I, I I agree with you, John. I don't, I don't think, I don't feel challenged or in fact, I feel a degree of um, commonality when you talk this way, because it's what I deal with every day in the church and in within Christianity. Okay. Can I say one thing then? Cause that, oh, absolutely.
1: Was, that was very well, it was very well taken by me uh, is what I'm trying to say. Um, it would be good if we could talk about, like I said, um, I found this book deeply provocative because he talks a long time about love and the postmodern predicament very deeply, very profoundly in a way that I found deeply educating before he dare mentions God. And I think that's something that I'm also wanting, I'm trying to recommend, right? Can we get to a place because you know what? Maybe not everybody in the pew wants to talk about all this hype, but I bet you they care about love they care about light, meaning intelligibility and right the lived meaning, right? They care about logos and they care about life. Um, and if we don't start talking about those things, I think what we do, we do two things. Either they will eventually go somewhere where they can talk about those things um, in whatever way. That That's a vacuum that will not be left unfilled is what I'm, I'm saying, right? Um, and so if we and I agree, I don't want to do, like, I know, I'm guilty of verbosity, I get that, right, Uh, but my my honest intent is I don't want to do this, I want to renew our ability to deeply, like, deeply, individually and collectively reflect upon these things from a place of embodiment that's in relationship to what you guys would call incarnation, and I'm happy to talk about what that might mean in relation to... Because there's like, for example, if you're gonna keep talking about incarnation and you're not talking about embodiment that's going on in cognitive science, you're missing the boat. You are missing the boat, right? And if you're talking about incarnation and you're not talking about incorporation, both in the sense of distributed cognition and corporate structures that are the principalities and powers of our life, you're missing the boat. That's what I would say to you, right? That's what I would say to you. And, and, and when you're going to talk about embodiment, you have to talk about love and life and light and logos in a if, like in that deeply embodied, enacted, embedded, extended fashion. Um,
2: that I guess that's what that's what I'm saying. And I I'd say amen to that. <clears throat> now I'll I'll say a little bit more now about deconstruction. I am surrounded by it. Mm. I'm not going to go into details because uh, it's, you know, even though I, I talk a lot on the internet, someone who would watch very carefully might notice there are certain areas I don't talk about. Yeah. I am I am surrounded by people that I love more than any any other people in the world um people who are i am closer to them more than any other people in the world who have um who have walked away from the faith who have deconstructed and i have heard the the, you know very often the kinds of testimonies like i we heard from audrey assad in the video that i listened to from yes um, yes um, where they have where they have spoken about um Oh, I, they're, they're, they just have a sense of liberation. They have a sense of, you know, they've gotten these idols off their backs, and they are released from these stories, and they're released from um, behavioral constraints and accountability and all of this stuff. And they 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 very quickly have a sense of liberation, and they can breathe more freely. And you know, and for this reason, you know, in terms of proximal betterment. Um, I I have no question that their their deconstruction was necessary and and productive often. Watching people long term in this, however, I have also noticed, Mm -hmm. you know, Clay Rutledge has written about a number of these things, you know, from a non-Christian perspective. um, That the vacuum, when you you know, Jesus talks about this in his parables. When you break an idol and you break, because idols aren't just an image. These images, you know, they're they're institutions, they're lifestyles, they're embodiment. I mean, we embody these idols. So they break this idol. Unless there is a better something to replace it, Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. tends to creep in is usually the um, just the stuff of popular culture very because, much well yeah it's and, and you stuff. talk about this too and I know you do yeah. um, and so I think this I think this process I, I think this process is endemic I think I, I think it's been endemic within the history of Christianity, which is why Chesterton has written about it and Peugeot talks about it. And the, the I think some of the deeper questions are, is, is this process actually progressive in that? Do we actually make um, progress with it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, in terms of how it scales and fractals in individual lives, you know, human beings are in some ways also fodder for this being that, um, that we are all participating in because you see, you know, you see some people fail and you see some people fail all the way to the grave. Yeah. And again, as a pastor... <laughs> It's very difficult as a pastor not to recognize the failures of our, the, the failures and limitations of our practices. Because you might have someone who has been sitting faithfully in your church, participating in all of the programs, and the kind of embodied love that the person they say is their master has certainly at least not to many of us who are witnessing them been manifest in their lives. Mm. And that, that causes obviously consternation and reflection on behalf of those who have positions of authority and responsibility in said institutions. But um, I, I am not Anxious about deconstruction, because I don't understand that there are stories and pictures and um, narratives within Christianity now that need to be broken. That doesn't mm-hmm. bother me. yeah, I am more anxious about the fact that so often those who deconstruct. Simply um default either to the church of Netflix or sort of a so many friends who have, you know, they've left a traditional religion and oh, they do some yoga and they do some meditation. Yes, they do yes. a few things out here, but it's sort of like another pastor of mine that says, says, All these people have left my church to be Orthodox. And you know what they don't do? go to an orthodox church. No. And and I see that in yeah. the spiritually but not religious. That's And and they've they've sort of become just an alternative to this image that David French just wrote about yesterday in terms of white evangelicals. That they're, they're just as captive to another political ideology as the white evangelicals are to a particular political ideology. And so what we're really looking for is in fact this We're all looking, we're all looking not only for proximal betterment for that, but for that betterment to continue to scale. And and that's why so, in so much of this, John, I count you as an ally, because you're helping people to deconstruct better. Mm -hmm. And our iron is sharpening iron. And whereas one hand, many who have deconstructed simply won't listen to me because I'm a Christian pastor, but they will listen to you. Mm -hmm. And you're challenging them to that, say that, that was one
1: of the best presentations of my position if that's what i have that i've ever heard paul <laughs> thank you thank you very much for that I, I really appreciate that like profoundly and all the meanings of appreciate that raises one more question and then i i, I want to hear what paul a has to say let's take me as a potential example and i have many people that are similar and like And the people I see the people who are attracted to my work and some of them do return to Christianity and and, um, or to Islam or to Buddhism. Right. Um, Judaism I had amazing conversations with Zevi about, uh, you know, his take on mysticism. Right. What do you do with this? Because I'm now talking at the level of the four L's of life and love and light and logos. I have a loyalty to Socrates and to Siddhartha that I'm not going to abandon. I'm never going to betray those loyalties. And I'm not, I'm not unique in this and to and to Plotinus, right? I had those loyalties are I, because they are doing exactly what you're proposing, Paul. They are affording me not going from deconstruction into decadence. And so and And that, and, like I say, how would you and this is an open question right how would you welcome back people who need to live out those loyalties this is the, this
0: is the question I wanted to get at because Paul, when you were talking, all I could think about is now essentially what we've boiled this whole discussion down to is like competing visions of the good, and so then how do we make? both the epistemological um processes how do we identify like what's the right methodology for determining the good what the good life looks like what's true what's beautiful but also like what's our hermeneutic key and i I don't want to throw a bunch of language in there because i think you guys were doing a really good job both of you of distilling this down to where the every man every woman is at in this this grappling process you talked about in one of your conversations john about how much your friends had noticed in you when you started practicing Tai Chi religiously, how much transformation was occurring in your life. And by that, I assume you meant positive transformation very much. So the first question I came to mind for me though, was there is, how do we put this? I, in talking about that, let me let me circle back around to this this thing I you've talked about before about what would it look like if all of the internal mechanisms and machinery that we have bound up in our egotistic self get Another exapted one. onto the yeah. world. Yeah. And I am ready to have a Billy Graham altar call when I hear that. <laughs> let's come streaming down the altar the Pentecostal charismatic in me, you know, says we're gonna line people up and and say yes to that, but I am able to, and I'm able to be honest about my convictional location. My convictional location I'm confessing is situated in a Christian story. So when I hear that I'm confessing, just like you are with the Buddha, with Plotinus, that for me, and this certainly isn't, this would be a ridiculous claim to make, to say that Jesus is Lord in all aspects of my life. That's, that would be ridiculous. But when I look at that, I go, I can say yes to that, honestly, because I see the slain lamb as the prototype of a new creation. And so I'm confessing like my hermeneutic key, I'm engaging with what you say, John is positive, because I'm confessing my allegiance to this picture of Christ yeah. that I have. And so what I what I see sometimes, and I think, you know, Tom Holland brings this up in Dominion is like, I want to get out a little bit. And again, this isn't to move into like Philea, Nikea, or to get into apologetic mode. I really want to wrestle with this because this is one of the things as a pastor, just a human being, the world is shrinking and our engagements with people across a variety of of Mm -hmm. religious commitments, of non-religious commitments, of substitute secular religious commitments. We have these engagements happening all the time. And I feel like in the West, we are still dealing with, like, the implied thing that your friends, and you can correct me on this, John, when they saw something in your life that was transformative, they probably saw what Christians would say are fruits of the spirit. Like, and that's not to say that's the only way of looking at it. No, no, no. But uh-uh. if, if let's say instead, we were in, like, my Ma- ancient Mayan civilization, right? Yes. No. Um <laughs> We're going to have, especially when it comes to worship um, and what might even be coming out of us in altered states of consciousness, I think we would all be in agreement, whether it's ancient Mayans or whether what Himmler was doing with Nazi occult stuff, that there are encounters that people have that we would say move into that state of self-transcendence. Like They move beyond their egotistical concerns, and now they're encountering principalities, powers, they're encountering something beyond them. They're hyper objects, whatever language we want to use. And what is it that allows us to look at the Mayans who are killing people as part of one one dimension? This isn't certainly all the dimension of ancient Mayan religious practice, but one dimension is the killing, the sacrifice of human beings. And we're able to, from our convictional location, look at that and go, that is not a vision of the good life. So the question I guess I'm really trying to get at is, don't we all have, as you're confessing, John, and I think I'm confessing, like we have to confess our convictional location and we all have a functional Christ. Like, and I know I'm a pro, I'm using that in like maybe a colonialist sort of way of doing it. A functional Buddha, a functional what sits atop our guiding story. What is it that informs and writes that story? What is it that sits atop the hierarchy of values Is it an archetypal figure? Is it when we envision the ideal, what is of ultimate concern? We're making like a hermeneutic choice with the rest of reality. So I'm able to say honestly to you, John, and I think you hear this from people, and I know you don't know what to do with it, but people look at you and the way you engage with us, and they see Christ-likeness in it. And I know you've heard that from people, and I, I know you don't know what to do with that. But I'm able to say that because I'm confessing, honestly, that I see Christ as sitting atop the hierarchy of all that is true, good and beautiful. Like, I see that. But for someone else that goes, well, I'm not, I don't accept that. Um, That would be the full picture. Don't we really need to get to the point where like we're laying on the table with each other? What are those things that we're saying? As of right now, I'm not budging from this. Like You're
1: honestly doing with us and I appreciate that. Well, uh, that's, that's profound. Um, yeah, I don't know what, I, I mean, I, I'm appreciative of people saying they see Christ-likeness. I guess I was hoping they'd also see Socrates. I was hoping they'd also see Siddhartha. Right. I was hoping they'd also see Spinoza. Um, mm-hmm. And other people do. So I'm saying to you, people will say, I see, people will say to me, I feel like I'm in one of, people comment, I feel like I'm in one of Plato's dialogues listening to you and the, the people you speak right and so they see Socrates and I'm not claiming to be Socrates any more than I would dare to claim to be Christ or anything remotely ridiculous like that so please take that as please, please take it charitably right but I would hope that they're seeing the, the, you know the, the symphony of sages that I have internalized and for me that I guess what you're asking is the phenomenological cognitive existential marker for me is when that symphony is concordant when there's harmony when there's beauty where's when, when, when and when that beauty is the beauty that is the doorway to truth and to yeah. goodness that's when i feel i'm on the path and symphony again of sages is
0: a great way of putting it john i don't mean to interrupt but because yeah. that gets at the question i'm trying to get at is yeah. who's the conductor of the symphony of sages there is no conductor when you're playing jazz part of me would push back on that because as a musician as a musician myself and i'm not a jazz musician but in my neither I. but
1: tai chi is jazz like when you're fighting there's a
0: harmony though that happens even in jazz even in the dissonance so there's a difference between when my kids are just banging around on the piano and a jazz musician but uh, what i'm saying is like even in jazz even in the intended dissonance i would suggest like this is how we talked about it in my my charismatic, wild, I'm acting essentially as a Christian shaman worship leader phase. Okay. We were searching for harmony with the spirit. And there was something that we real we felt would happen when we all got locked in on the same page, and there was spontaneity. And even in our music, wow. you okay. know what I mean? I'm saying, yeah. So we yeah. named it as good because we said this is good because we identified it as the spirit of god the holy spirit whether we're right or not in all those instances is another question
1: but we were still honest in naming that okay so let me let me respond then and, and what i was trying to push back on i don't think there's a cause of the logos other than the logos and trying to look for but there must be an origin cause of the logos i think is, right, is right. A, but do you I have mean,
0: an icon though
1: or, or, or several icons
0: or like the boundaries of what the logos is from what other principalities and powers that might be like, hey, let's go, let's let's kill some people. <laughs> you know, like let's have human sacrifice.
1: Like right. and you can say it, no to that and yes to another thing. But, but yeah, and I agree. And so but what I'm what I'm saying is, um and let me try and do this carefully, please. I don't think we ultimately have any deeper criterion. Than our sense of like Spinoza again, truth is its own criterion, right? And and beauty and goodness, and and this is Plato's sort of uh, what he ultimately is getting at. If you, if you don't have the virtue and the virtuosity to recognize them, there's nothing that I can do, nothing, to give it to you, no. right? If right, if you don't have honesty, how could I possibly appeal to you in any way to get you to pursue honesty? right? And this, this, and, and this is the great, you know, and, and we have to use this metaphor very carefully now. This is the seduction metaphor, right? Um, and I guess my response to you is, um, how do we discern the spirits, uh, to use, I guess, the biblical language you'd want is, yeah. I mean, how do you discern the true and the good and the beautiful? How do you separate those out? And, and I don't know of any way of getting at, a set of propositions that will algorithmically resolve that that is my concern. Oh that's so, good. Right? That's That's good. my concern. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is I mean I think all of us have a fundamental faith in the hearth sense in the intelligibility in the intelligibility of reality the light and the logos that's livable and lovable and affords us right like 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 think about love like let, let, let Think about when you're in like we, we're in love and we fall in love, like love simultaneously comes to us emanation and it wells up within us emergence and just just be with that like really sink into the phenomenology and then and then think what would it mean to participatory knowing to know by loving right. And, and part of my response is, I mean, and and, and it goes to the Tillich quote. Like, I'm more willing to trust those aspects of me and other people that have gone deeply into tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. They have to take, right? And and you can say that's fallible. Yes, it is. And so is anything else I would say you propose to me. And and when you guys are honest, you say that. The Mm -hmm. church is fallible. The scriptures can be interpreted, you know, and there's no, I don't find any, this is like, you know, the first noble truth of Buddhism. There is no place. Where I can get outside of my finitude and my being fallible. And, and so I think that one of the greatest idols we have, and we see it in the, idol, in the idolist, idolatrous ideologies, is people claiming that they can get out of that. Oh, no, I, I'm out of fallibility. I, I just know. I mean, and that's, that's what terrifies me. And, and, and it's obviously in the service of, well, you know, I just know that, like, like I, I strongly believe with good evidence and argument that racism is wrong. But that's different from, I know, and I infallibly know. That scares me. That scares me. So I, right, that is not something I want to be saying here. So I think, how do you discern the spirits? The depth of the people that are making the claims. I, I And I don't know what else I can ultimately put my faith in, right? I, I really don't. I really don't. And, and for me, it's at least a really powerful heuristic that the people that go like this—that it's because they have—they—they they have not lived in the depths the way they need to. The way they—they they have not been educated. They have not been educated in the depths. They might have been exposed or fallen into the depths, but that's not the same thing as being educated in the depths, right? And that—that—and that's what we're doing here, right? Part of the answer to your question is this right is this that's exactly and i that's what i mean by the dialectic into the logos i don't, and, and you i understand and, and and i'm not trying to say like uh poo poo on what you're saying i understand what you want to right and, and and you should right you want to say but beyond that isn't there and in, in a sense you're right but now you're 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 shifting me off what do i think is the ultimate real to how do I ultimately decide? And those are not the same question. And yes, I'm trying good, to answer good. the second question. I'm trying mm-hmm. to answer the second question and I'm telling you how I
2: decide. Mm. I just wanna say, John, that before, uh, Socrates was Socrates before he was Socrates. <laughs> I don't know if you understand that. So, I, John, do, I do, I do, I do understand. Don't cut yeah, yourself yeah. too short. Um, (laughs) Now I'm getting it. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Paul. That was very kind. There's a. I I, I often. Much of what you just said about. I loved how, boy, you know, you keep quoting Spinoza, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I got to, I got to do more reading of this.
1: Read Carlyle's book, Paul. You will love it. Spinoza's Religion is the best book on Spinoza, just like D.C. Schindler's book, Plato's Plato's Critique of Impure Reason, best book on Plato. Carlyle's book on Spinoza, brilliant, recent, brilliant, and it goes to it does what we're doing here. It reaches into the height of the metaphysics,
2: but into the depths of the participation. Yeah. So. You know, I, I look at, so in, so my Calvinism, I, I can, you know, especially when I call myself a Calvinist on the internet, people go all over the place because of other Calvinists that are around and that's fine. Um, but what, what you just talked about, I mean, you can have, you can have the infallible word of God, but can, you know, can you appropriate that infallible word word into you? And Calvin's answer is No only the spirit can do that. It, it takes, you know, we, the, the only connection between us and this word of God is in fact the spirit. And so this has been, you know, been being played around. I, I hadn't read any Karl Barth ever in my career until recently. And, you know, I find Karl Barth to be deeply Calvinistic, but it's, you know, um, Marilyn Robinson as a Calvinist and, John Piper oh, is a Calvinist yeah. and you know there's, there's a lot of Calvinists around him. I didn't know Robinson was a Calvinist. Yeah, Marilyn Robinson is a Calvinist. Her, her books are astonishing novels. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah. They're so. beautiful.
1: Yeah. They're, I profoundly recommend them to anybody. Anybody listening, read her novel, her trilogy. <laughs> Yeah, like yeah. And, I think oh, John's oh, oh. shocked
0: that a Calvinist can write like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, I, so sorry, I didn't mean to be insulted. No, not, <laughs> not
2: insulted. I, I, I knew that if once I, I, I couldn't be a Christian for a minister and not identify as a Calvinist. So I thought I'll put it out there, and I knew everything that I would get back from it, which I regularly do. But that's okay. Um, part of, you know, I, I look at Lewis with some of, you know, John, I you know, when you, when you tell me that, um, about your loyalties to Siddhartha and Plotinus and Socrates, um, I, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, first of all, I think it's just part of what the American experiment got right. And that the enlightenment got right post Protestantism and post, um, the, 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 pluralism of confessionalism that brought all that bloodshed in Europe was, um, I I, I cannot take that away from you, John, nor should I try in um, using many means to try, such as, you know, um, ostracize you or put you on a rack or take your money away or your liberty away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, In in the same way that, um, you you know, you've spoken of Sarah, your partner, why should I? Why should I take your loyalty? Um, why should I take that away from you as well? I mean, loyalty is what it is. So let's um, let's let, let's realize that to begin with. Part of what is amazing about C.S. Lewis is that, on one hand, he can sound so, you know, thoroughly. How, how to go about this? Okay, uh, I'm going to backtrack again. In my tradition, in Dutch Reformed tradition, we have this we have this Dutch polymath at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century named Abram Kuyper, mm-hmm. and he was he founded a university, founded a political party, he wrote dogmatic theology, he began in liberalism and transformed into what is now neo Calvinism, and he did all of this stuff. And and he tried to hold together two things in Calvinism, which are very difficult to hold together. One is the antithesis, which is good, bad, right, wrong, black, white. Mm -hmm. And the other is his doctrine of common grace, where he Mm -hmm. says, you know, basically, as Richard Mao has riffed, he shines through all that's fair. Now, we have a real problem holding these two things together. It's sort of like binary and analog. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, though, that in order to hold them together, you can't deny either, even if you can't reconcile them. Mm-hmm. But but we in our living, not maybe not so much in our theoretical talking mm-hmm. or in our, our abstractions, because these two things are abstractions, they're antithetical abstractions, but in our living, in narrative, We sort of integrate them. And so someone that I think integrated these things quite well is someone like C.S. Lewis, because he has his, on one hand, he has his um, trilemma, which has become this, you know, this thing that's used in apologetics that, um, Jesus is a lunar liar, li- you know, lunatic, lu- lunatic liar or lord. I mean, talk about antithetical. He, he's going to yeah. put you on this rack and say, "Okay, choose." <laughs> and on the other hand, he writes in something like the last battle, where there's this um, Emmett, I think his name is, who is yep. this, um, who is this officer in the evil army, and now. He is brought into Aslan's presence. And Aslan says to him, To the degree that you served the best of this evil God that he had, you were serving me. And you think, Well, how on earth could Lewis hold both of these things together? How could he be the both the author of the trilemma and the author of The Last Battle, where he seems to, in some ways, be riffing on. His spiritual mentor, um, the the Scott um, George Macdonald. How, I mean, how, how can both of these things live in Lewis? Um, and, and others,
1: because uh, he's got the magician's nephew.
2: Exactly. I don't know what they're
1: teaching kids this day. It's all in Plato. That's right. Those and and are, yeah. <laughs> a,
2: a, a, a guy who was used to be the author before he died. He was the editor of the Christian Courier, which is a Canadian. Calvinist um, publication. And he did couldn't stand Lewis. He said all that Platonism. He just couldn't stand all the <laughs> Platonism in Lewis. But there he was, and um, you know, part of what we are living through is obviously the the globalization and and the pluralisms that globalization brings to us, where you know, we've got Moses and Jesus and, you know, for many of the Jewish friends, well, <laughs> that, yeah. that's exactly what, if you believe the gospel accounts, it's exactly what Jesus was wrestling with, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and various yeah. groups in his, you know, and Jesus would say, well, if you really knew Moses, you'd know me. And well, which Moses? So um, I, John, we, we are certainly living in a world now where We are trying to figure this out, but yet there's also, and I think, you know, I believe that it is in fact at the embodiment level. The new Testament Mm -hmm. is very strange and that we have all these Protestants running around and, you know, we're going to believe in Jesus and post Luther, this mental ascent. And I'm saved because of this mental ascent. And I walked down the aisle for Billy Graham, all of the new Testament descriptions of the last judgment people are always judged on what they do mm-hmm. it's very unsettling to protestants <laughs> right they're we're always judged on what they do well now if you're a sola scriptura protestant what are you going to make of that um is it work salvation and then Chris, you know protestants have been wringing their hands over fighting about these kind of things forever sure. but there's a sense in which that i I have often said that narrative is this massive compression engine by -hmm. which we can take this world and, you know, put it into something that we can appropriate and manipulate and use. Well, I I think action is even a more massive compression engine. Yeah. Yes. And, and so, um, you know, I, I have been blessed John by your, binary commitment and your loyalties to Siddhartha and Plotinus and Socrates because I think through the distillation including the sort of Tom Holland context that you all of this has been brought through the distillation of them into who you are and how you have chosen to live your life even just the the thin narrowness of it that I know you through these screens because we've never met in person. And we certainly aren't neighbors where we see each other and, you know, know so much more of our lives together, but I have certainly been blessed by Siddhartha and Plotinus and Socrates through you. And, and and so on one hand, Kuiper doesn't give up on the antithesis, but he's also the most prominent, um, Theologian in my tradition of common grace, that you know, Christ works through Plotinus and Siddhartha and Socrates, and in some ways claims them. Now, again, that sounds terrifically colonial, and so I'll, you know, I'm not going to hold anyone to that, simply just matter as I can't help but be born in 1963 to Stan and Barb and catechized and all of that cake is baked into me. And so I, as a human being, am always going to be, on one hand, this terrifically limited creature by time and space, even if I have this imagination that can do all kinds of things. And yet that, that then is expression of the embodied and the particular yet the particular is in another way the action the real the physical is in another way more real which i think the enlightenment and modernity gets right more real than all of this language and verbalizing and imagining that i do there's there's a reality to that that simply will not be denied and so I I am not in any way bothered by your loyalties and your commitments any more than I'm bothered by your loyalty to Sarah.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. It's Sarah by the way. Sarah, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh well, let me let me let me reciprocate. Um t- I mean talking to you, both of you, talking to JP, talking to Jonathan, talking to Mary um has helped me a lot to and I mean this again in the three senses of the word to reappreciate Jesus. Um, um, so, uh, like a, for example, I'm I'm reading through uh, David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament, doing Lexio divina on it because I want to reconnect with um, with that I don't know that perspective and presence that people uh, find in. The Jesus of the Bible. I don't know what I don't know what name to give. Uh, I, I'm not claiming I'm becoming a Christian or anything like that. But what I'm saying is, I, I felt responsible to be responsive to what I was seeing in all of you, um, and so I put it into action, and I put it into an, a kind of action that has the real good faith potential to transform me. That's how I felt called to respond to what I was seeing in the good faith discussions that I was having with all of you. So I, I'm reciprocating back what you said to me.
0: That's great John. I want to throw in some stuff that Paul was talking about just as again another voice from a Christian perspective. I'm not a Calvinist. I probably would be more in that Wesleyan Wesleyan vein um, but religious pluralism was like the pri- one of the primary along with theology of culture was one of the primary areas of um, my my focus in 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 my master's program Mm -hmm. and i ended like what was essentially my thesis with that scene from the last battle paul um we are talking about i think i want to just affirm even some of the the critiques and pushbacks you give john are really instructive in helping us recover what i think has been the lost i know this sounds like some sort of (laughs) history channel weird claim here but the lost christianity Uh, a Christianity that has been largely lost in American evangelicalism and fundamentalism. I can't speak necessarily, even actually in the Catholic church. I mean, the second Vatican council countered what was effectively, uh, I'm going to get my years wrong, but at least over a thousand years of Catholic church teaching that was saying there's no salvation outside of the church and the second Vatican council, they changed that doctrinal position to what was held by the patristics. And this is a shift from no salvation outside of the church to this understanding of, and I'm not saying this is what you're saying, John, but I'm saying what you have to say brings us into a a positive reassessment of our past. The shift from no salvation outside of the church to no salvation outside of Christ is a big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a big difference that gets at this heart of even what you're talking about with jazz, right? Um, When you're playing music, jazz music, there is harmony. Uh, Even in, even in intended dissonance at times, Mm -hmm. there are, there's unspoken rules to the genre of music, right? Um, Discerning what that is and living in harmony with that is really what I would say is at the heart of these, you know, these supposed law gospel divides. So people pit Paul against James in the New Testament, and there is no pitting of it. Um, the image that the author of Hebrews gives of heroes of faith includes Rahab, the hooker, right? Right. And what made her a hero of faith was not that she had all of the propositions about God correct. She certainly didn't, especially from an ancient Jewish perspective. She was the in the enemy camp, right? But what she did do was she identified, she responded to the light that she had. She responded to the light that she had, and she actually manifested in her response fruits in keeping with the Torah, which was to provide hospitality to strangers. And in that way, she's listed alongside Abraham as a hero of faith. I think one of the things you're helping us do, John, is kind of reassess this. And the technical term is ecclesiocentric exclusivism. This claim that there is no salvation outside of the church. That it, it requires people to have engaged a specific proclamation of the gospel by Christians in order for someone to come into some sort of harmony with God, right? That's what the atonement is at one minute, that harmonization, the adherence, the coherence, you talk about this with the cup, you know, yeah, coherence yeah. and adherence. Um, that is something I think we've lost in some of what I think really not to pick on, you know, some Protestant reformers like Luther, Luther misunderstood. I've got a friend, Matthew J. Thomas. He's got a great book on second temp, uh, second century reception to Paul's letters and he shows that among the very earliest Christians, there is um, a very different understanding of what law gospel meant. Um, we pitted it in the Lutheran tradition, right? As you have all of your works and all of your works are total trash until you've made a profession of faith about certain, pro- uh, certain propositions about Jesus. And he calls into question that um, N.T. Wright. There's sort of a new perspective on Paul school of thought that's that's challenging some of that law gospel divide. Instead, what N.T. Wright argues is we're misreading Romans. Romans 1 says that access to God has been available to all people at all times, even among the Gentiles. And he even says, Paul says, the Gentiles became a law unto themselves, right? when <laughs> they responded to the light that they had. What we get called to, and this would be my interpretation, I don't even know if Paul's in agreement with me on this. What Christians are called to is not that there's an exclusive team in which God is extending salvation to, but He's extending a new vocational expansion, a vocation that was once held exclusively by the Jewish people to be a light unto the nations. And what God extends in in the new testament is this announcement especially we see in pauline writing that the vocation of being the people of god to be a blessing to the world to be salt and light to announce the good news is now extended to all people but it certainly doesn't mean that access to god is limited to people otherwise i mean have we really sometimes christians don't even think through this stuff like what do we do with the However many thousands of years, I mean, we'd say post-Christ, at least, you know, maybe 1400 years, depending on, you know, how you date this between European engagement with the first Native Americans on this continent. So you're telling me for the 1400 years, because those people had never heard the name Jesus, that none of them had access to God. And I think that is really at the heart of like C.S. Lewis's critique in the last battle. I think it's something that we should be challenging Christian communities to think about. And for me, that does nothing to threaten my commitments to Jesus as Lord um, in any way, shape, or form. I I don't see that as a threat. I see when I read Buddha, when I read um, Plotinus, and I find points of harmony I'm able to celebrate that and to celebrate it honestly, saying like, John, when I engage in good faith dialogue with you, I confess I only see in part, we prophesy in part, this is part of the Christian commitment. We're waiting for that which is perfect to come, then that which in part will be done away. Um, So when I engage in like interreligious dialogue, I can still come because we need to get down to like, how do communities actually function then, right? Right. Um, In your religion, that isn't a religion. How would a community around that actually function? And then how would they engage with others and their neighbors? And then how does that scale all the way up to a society and civilization? Um, I'm allowed to engage I'm not allowed. I find great freedom in engaging with Muslims, with Jews, with Taoists, with nuns, with, you know, DIY spiritualities that exist in Western culture and finding things like. To celebrate about it because I see it as bearing witness to Christ. So that allows me at least, even if I'm not saying in a colonial way, all of you need to get on board with me. I'm at least able to functionally engage with my neighbors in a way that I think your critique is really, it's not just your critique, but it's a really important thing for Christians to reevaluate. Like, are we are we serious that we're saying like people that lived in the Qin dynasty? like with no access to the name Jesus, like they're all of their efforts to reach out to that, which is of ultimate concern of, of crying out of, of earnest spiritual searching produced complete and total emptiness. I, I personally wrestle with that. I struggle with that. Um, and I, I didn't used to, but I, I do think that you're providing with us a a valuable critique that I think Christians should wrestle with even those that say that aren't unitive pluralists like a John Hick. So John Hick was a a unitive pluralist who was arguing that all religious experience um, insofar as it produces these sorts of morals, which that was kind of like the thing, like which morals are we? And that's kind of getting to my earlier question. As long as it produces these morals they're all the same experience that's different to me than this sort of christocentric inclusivism and it's very different than the exclusivist position um, i'm talking too much but and rambling at this point but i'll leave it there no i
1: i mean i, I yeah I, I i mean hicks work the fifth dimension and interpretation of religion uh were influential on me but i ultimately also am critical of his kantian uh, perennialism um i don't think that's a good um i think i I reject both sort of clear perennialism and clear relativism as trying to talk about this that's why i try and i'm trying to make a place for pluralism and i try to use the analogy like you've heard you've both heard it you know we can have a universal theory of evolution but that doesn't mean that all the organisms are going to turn out homogenous in fact the theory predicts we're going to get many many different organisms right um and that's along that analogy the, the, the cognitive evolution of meaning making is going to be universal, but that doesn't mean right, that uh, all the products are going to be homogenous, but neither does it give into a kind of relativism either. Um, right? uh, and so, um, yeah, that, I, I agree. And I, th- I, I would suggest to you that, that while well, that problem is, has some unique aspects to Christianity, I think that's a problem of the world right now, uh, of trying to get between the two easy answers that we're given are perennialism and relativism um and 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 um I think they're both problematic uh, now of course I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that the perennialists, uh, and the relativists won't try and make can't make good moves and try and you know I'm, I'm not I'm not telling anybody to stop doing their philosophy that's would be ridiculous uh but what I'm saying is I think right now um I think that's that's a that's a general problem I like hearing well, 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 my preferences don't matter, but I'm just trying to say um, I, I like hearing that, you know, that this problem is being wrestled with. Um, I grew up in an imperialist, colonialist, um, triumphalist version of Christianity that would regularly pronounce would, when, when any other religion was announced, if it ever was, and when it in, you know, was infrequent. But when it was, it was immediately followed by the phrase, and it's sending millions of people to hell. Right? So Islam, a religion that is sending millions of people to hell, that's like, that was always the announcement of any other religion, um, which, you know, it's again a traumatic thing because I go to school and I meet people. And as a kid, what am I, how am I going to think of these? I'm going to think of them as the incarnation of evil. And yet they're nice kids. And yet I'm a, I'm a, like I'm terrified of going to their house because it's evil and there's evil there. Right and and like so th- th- that um, like um, hearing something different, again, but I've already said that, I hear a lot of different um, I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to do something that somebody called me on and um, and I'm trying to do it here, and I'm starting to trying to start doing it more regularly. I'm trying to trying to see and interject the projections from and and therefore biases that my traumatic encounter with Christianity are color, the way they color and distort my vision. And I'm trying, so why I'm doing the Lexia Divina on the New Testament. This is one of the this is the personal reason above and beyond the general reason why I want to talk to people like you. Because so I want, right, I want to, I want to be drawn beyond my trauma. Um, and I want to be able to speak um, as much truth as possible. Um, so what, that's a long way of saying i'm finding I'm also finding these discourses tremendously helpful in in, 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 in not only in philosophical ways and those are important but in in personal ways um, I do not want to be criticizing if that's even what I'm doing I do not want push backing i do want I do not want to be pushing back on christianity just out of my own uh, traumatic bias i want i mean I want to try to acknowledge that I'm no doubt doing that. I want to try and see where it's happening, but I also want to try and open up to the possibilities beyond that. Um, And you're both right now helping me do that. So thank you.
0: Paul, do you have any closing thoughts? I think we're going on uh, over a couple hours here. Yeah,
1: I have to go because I'm going to be talking to Savilla soon about neoplatonism. So I'm Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah.
2: No, I, I, again, I just deeply appreciate, I deeply appreciate this. I mean, for me... Christianity is this strange religion in which, on one hand, the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John, Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And then also in the Gospel of Matthew, um, Jesus commands all of his followers to love their neighbor all the way up to and including their enemy. And in the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes Christians will, I mean, She said, well, doesn't Christ say be perfect? And I say, yes, read the Sermon on the Mount. Read the context in which um, the Father's perfection, Jesus commands us to emulate the Father's perfection. And that perfection is his generosity towards the just and the unjust. It's right there in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I always heard be perfect, but it was sort of pulled right out of context, which, (laughs) you know, And but but no. So, um, and I... I consider I don't know I, I just feel a, a ter- tremendous amount of gratitude to God and to John and to Jonathan and to you Paul and to all of those who are participating in this little corner of the internet that was of course a, something f- coined by Sevilla um, just to just to be able to just have the amazing good fortune to be able to participate in this right here and right now I it's, it's it's one of the remarkable most remarkable passages of my life and i i feel deep deep gratitude for this so i just want to say that
1: well i i i also want to express the gratitude but i want i want to make a request i would like the three of us to try taking each one of the four L's and talking about god before we talk about god if i can put it in that paradoxical way i want to talk about love and how it discloses being i want to talk about life i want to talk about logos and i want to talk about light and i want to talk about god before we're talking about god uh, and i would like to do that in your company if that would if be great would, if you I would like. love that
2: sure
0: we'll love that i'll um we'll reach back out after this and maybe nail down a time in the new year after the holidays to have that yes. discussion yes. and john will just kind of let you set the table and and, and if, if you want me in on that grade, if you just want to dialogue with Paul, there's no offense. And that no, easy, no, no, no.
1: I, 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 this is this is good. I'd like to.
0: I'd like to do this again. Good, good. Well, thank, thank you, you, gentlemen. This has been tremendous. I'll have this out probably on Tuesday for everybody, and I'll share it with you all as well, so you can do what you want with the files and put it on whatever platforms you like, or not, or burn it, whatever you want to do. So, thank you, John. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, both of. Thank them. you, both of you. Well, I so thoroughly enjoyed that time with both Paul and John, but uh, the thing I would enjoy even more coming out of that conversation is to hear from you and to have an opportunity to engage in dialogue, at least in the very least in some sort of written form, electronic form. And one of the ways you can do that is by participating in our discussion forum on Patreon for every episode, there is a discussion forum where people from all over the world, listeners from all over can engage not only with me, but with each other. It's a helpful place for us to collaborate, to push each other, to offer critiques. And uh, every single engagement that's happened over there has been respectful. And positive, so it's a much better place than sort of like a general Facebook post or something like that. So feel free to participate over there. Um, you can be a supporter of this podcast on Patreon. That helps keep this podcast ad-free, and I am tremendously grateful for all of you who support at any level of support. If you choose to do so, there's also additional bonus Q and A episodes. I put on charts and you know graphs at times and. Recommended reading lists, and then of course, we have an opportunity for monthly group Zoom conversations and uh, even opportunities if you want to sign up for one on one combos or any sort of spiritual counsel. I'm glad to do that as well. You can find all about that uh, at, on my Patreon page, and of course, I have a link in the description for that as well. Finally, I want to give an extra special thanks to. Taylor, Sean C, Sarah, Sam P, Sam and Nicole, Rob, Peter, Paul Reese, Paul Spencer, Mike Thomas, Michael Peterson, Michael Hernstein, Matthew, Luke, Lola, Justin, JT, Josie, John Michael, John Mark, Dr. Jim, Elise, Eli, Daniel, BJ, Jesse, and Clint. Thank you all for your generous support. I cannot do this without you. And finally, I do hope all of you will subscribe over on YouTube. I don't know if this will be the last podcast before the Christmas holiday, but in case it is, Merry Christmas to all of you. Happy New Year. I do hope you'll reach out and leave your feedbacks, comments, objections, all of that. And if we don't talk until then, again, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.